Well, we are starting a new series entitled Grit. And yes, I know some of us who are older, it's, it's difficult just to wake up in the morning and think you want to have some grit when you're just hoping that uh, in the morning you could just make it to your cup of coffee um, and in time and not spill it all over the place. I'm just talking, I'm starting to relate a little bit as I get a little bit older. Yesterday, I had the privilege, <laughs> I know you're going to think this is silly and I'm going to share this with you, I had the privilege of hitting golf balls yesterday. <laughs> Now, you might say, why is that such a privilege? It's because I grew up on a golf course, and I used to play all the time, every day. A pro taught me every day on the tee. I was, they were grooming me to be a pro at 12 years old. I was there from 6.30 in the morning until 8.30 at night, six days a week. The only reason why I took a day off is because the course was closed on Mondays. So, and my father said, go find another job. So I said, okay, dad, I'm 12 years old. Remember, I'm 12, I'm not 21 yet. So I was, I just loved, but the only problem was, was that my body just doesn't move the way it once did from 12, 17 years old to now 52. And turning is very tiring. (laughs) And I'm sitting there trying to hit, and I notice that when I go to finish my swing, I'm backing up because I can't, it hurts to just go through the ball. But gratefully, I was hitting ball straighter than I expected. Even my buddy who's from Pennsylvania came down and he was like amazed. I was amazed because I have, I'm actually, Pastor Dennis encouraged me to join a little, you know, little uh, uh, team over here for, as a substitute for just playing golf, you know, a couple of times, you know, in the next 10 weeks or so because I barely play one round every three or four years. So um, it was so much fun. It was exciting. But I got to be honest with you, I was absolutely exhausted afterwards. I took a walk after dinner, and I was huffing and puffing. My friend and I took it for about a mile and a half, and we were, well, I was struggling. And uh, I I thought I was just going to fall down because I, I just couldn't believe how tired I was. Yes, I am out of shape, of course. But um, but it was, I didn't think golf would be that tiring. So I have to play on Thursday. It was just the craziest thing. But it reminded me that I'm getting a little bit older. <laughs> and it reminds me that my body doesn't kick back like it once did. And grit, what we're going to talk about, as you may see in front of you, is a study in the book of Daniel. But if you see down by the bottom right of the slide that it says that it's God-honoring, resolve, intentionality, tenacity. And those words sound like you have to have energy behind them. <laughs> Sounds like you have to have some kind of huspah. You know, you got to have some, some excitement. But i got to be honest with you. It's not as though those words can excite you because it might tire you just reading those words. But the word grit in and of itself makes you sound like you have to dig a hole or a couple of holes. you got to dig out a whole bed out so you can... So you can plant some flowers. But i got to be honest with you. Looking at the life of Daniel, you can't see anything less than a man of grit. And with the three Hebrew boys that joined him. In a, in a society, in a culture, in a country where they were forced to become like someone else outside of who they were. To have to become another person. If you're an American, can you imagine going to another country and being forced to become like one of them? And so this is where Daniel was at. He was a man of grit. 
And it's important for us to grasp and re recognize that he was a transformer. He was not a conformer. He was all about being transformed, but being that transformer to see change in a situation, as we will see shortly in chapter 1. But I think about grit. There's so many stories out there that talk about grit, and many people think that people who make lots of money and who have big companies that are making millions and even billions thought it would be easy to get there. But many of those who have built big co companies have not arrived there solely on something handed to them. In fact, I, I did a little research this, this week, and I saw one individual that you might even be aware of, Howard Schultz. He's obviously the founder of Starbucks, one of the biggest coffee franchises in the world. But it didn't begin on good ground. It was very challenging. Um, without perseverance and courage and endurance, in other words, without grit, the coffee company would have not existed today. Some of you would appreciate what I'm sharing because you might be a Starbucks fan. I'm, I'm not a Starbucks fan, but I'll buy it because it's a little bit cheaper when you buy it at Giant. Um, but uh, I, am, I used to be a Dunkin' fan. I'm really not a Dunkin' fan. And for you Folgers fan, have mercy. Um, but uh, I'm a Lavazza fan, and I don't even know if you guys know what that is. It's an Italian espresso that I drink every morning from my cafetiera. So I drink that, and I love Lavazza. But he was a founder who had to go to over 200 banks to get a loan. And for some of you who are business-minded and who, who own companies, he went over 200 banks, and they would not give him a loan for his vision. In fact, it took 242. It was the 242. That was the number of the bank that he, that the bank finally trusted to give him something. Now, the reason why he was so motivated, the reason why he had such courage and perseverance and endurance is because his wife was pregnant with their first child. So he needed to get something started. And here he did, and he received a loan of $400,000. Today, there's over 350,000 employees. He's obviously making millions upon millions of dollars. But it took grit. It took patience. It took perseverance. It took a vision with a commitment to saying, I am not going to stop until I see something happen here. And I think that's something that you and I can learn from Daniel. Daniel could have easily conformed. The Hebrew boys could have easily conformed, but they didn't. They were deported. Obviously, we know the king, affectionately known as King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful kings to ever live here on earth. And they were solely dependent upon whether they were going to control their life moving forward. Now, you got to understand, the Israelites were deported, three different de deportations. When they were deported... Most of them lived their lives in this new culture, in this new country. They were there for 70 years. Can't imagine what would that have been like if someone were to take over America and we'd have to be deported to another country. And to learn their customs, to learn how to read, to learn their history, and to be able to recite it and to say, even with the intention of changing a potential name and identity, here was Daniel. And so as we look at it in chapter 1, chapter 1, 1 through 7, as we look at it, let's just, just read this together 
Um, and I just wanted to take more attention to um, verses 1 and 2. So verses 1 and 2, just to start off, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is around 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the, the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, you have to follow it. You know it, that there's a capital G and a smaller case G because they're talking about Elohims and then God who is Elohim but Adonai. This is the word Adonai in the Hebrew. And so he was highlighting, Daniel was highlighting the fact that here were the Israelites going to a different country. But the key word there in verse 2 is the Lord gave. So we've got to use, we've got to look at that word because it's three times in this chapter the Lord gave. We know that, you know, if you've been reading the scriptures for some years now, that the book of Daniel talks about God's sovereignty. And his hand upon his people. The first six chapters are talking about historically at that time. But then it moves into prophecy. And so as we look at this and we see, we see that the Lord gave Jehoiakim over one of his people to an enemy. To an enemy. And here was that a God was in the presence here. Handing them over to their enemy. God even called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. In Jeremiah 25, 8 and 9, I just want to read this to you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, God says, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Wow. My servant. God was using an enemy to discipline his people. And you might think, wow, God would punish his people? No, God would never punish us. There's motivation of love behind discipline. Just like when we would discipline our children, we discipline them with the intention to teach them something. Now, punishing is when you yell and you scream at them and you abuse them and then you don't correct them. Even the scripture talks about that. But the scripture is not just given us to just reveal our sin, but to correct us. And so key component here is that he goes on, he says, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. I'll tell you, God uses some really big, strong, heavy words. It almost sounds like, ooh, Lord, I don't think I want to talk to you again. I'm scared. Because God is saying it's a horror what I'm going to allow to happen to you. This is what I would call a God-whooping discipline. <laughs> it's God-whooping. You know, you notice he, I use the word discipline because it's motivated with love. God will use our enemies to discipline us for the opportunity to grow. That's the beauty of it. See, he does it. He allows it for the opportunity for us to grow. So Daniel was a catalyst believe, he was a catalyst leader ready to be used of God. He was resolved in his heart as we will see to honor him. What courage. You might be going through a trial wondering, wow, where is God in this? He can't be in this because the one who is opposing God is winning and we are losing. 
Says who? How do you know? Did God call us to have an upper hand in everything? I mean, we see it in our culture. We associate with a political party, and we say God is with us because I'm associated with a certain political party. And if another political party that's opposite of what you hold to wins, you start saying, God, you're not in this. Where are you, Lord? Are you, can we find you, Lord? You're not in this. Where are you? I can't find you, Lord. They're winning. They shouldn't be winning. We should be on the upper hand. We're Christians. We should always be up on top, right, Lord? The Lord's like, you're not getting it. Maybe I need to humble you a little bit, discipline you, speak to you, reveal to you some things in your lives that you may not understand. You're, you might be a wife today, and you're wondering, Lord, where are you? My husband is not doing what I want him to do. He's not falling in line. We've been together all these years, and he's falling away. He's not fulfilling what he's supposed to be doing. He used to be so kind and gentle and so caring. Now he barely talks to me. You're like, God, where are you in this? Where are you in this marriage? You might be saying to a child, oh, I remember those days <laughs> when they're so sweet and kind. We were looking at videos last night with Sophia singing at four years old. It was so cute. And, and you know, she was lifting up her hands and singing the song and doing all these hand motions. And we loved it. She wasn't too embarrassed. But we were singing through it with her. It was so precious. And she's still 12, so she's still young. But when they get older, you're like, where are those days? They're gone. So you try to find them in your grandchildren now, right? And then you hope your grandchildren are nearby, and you want to try to take every opportunity you can because they're gone. And they're gone. But you say, where are you, God? But God is right present with us in the midst of the trial. He's there with us. See, God, he he didn't call us to have the upper hand. I believe he called us to be humble, obedient, faithful, with great endurance and courage to follow him no matter what. That's grit. That's grit. That's the beauty of God. That's why when you see, you know, in, in verses 3 and 4 as he continues on and he, and he highlights this and, you know, we want to read it together here. He says, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So there he was, they were preparing and they wanted the very best from Israel. And then he goes on to say this, he says, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. So they wanted to eat the king's diet and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So there was a training period. They were to eat the king's diet, drink the wine. Three years, come before them to see if they were even better fit. Really, it was a brainwashing. That's what it was. They were brainwashing them to become part of this Babylonian culture, to learn the Chaldean culture. And he goes, verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So identifying them to be Israelites in a foreign land. And that's what Daniel was there. And in verse 7, we see this at the end of this passage part of the passage. It says, and the chief eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hanani he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. And here was this work of God, a movement. That only he could do. 
And so here was this movement of saying that Daniel was being used of God for a purpose. He wasn't called to be a conformer, but a transformer. See, a conformer would just give in, do whatever they say so they wouldn't be put to death. Don't talk back. Just be submissive. Be obedient. Don't, don't, lose, don't interrupt them. Don't question them. Don't say anything. You just, whatever they say you do, and you listen to them, and you fall in, you conform. You comply. Daniel didn't, didn't seem to get that message. <laughs> Daniel just seemed to go, it seemed like he was going on his own here a little bit because he was taking a, a true, true sense of the word of putting his life on the line. He was taking a risk that only God would allow him to work out. See, a transformer knows that trials are used for God's triumphs. That's what they know. See, Daniel, he had some kind of connection with because as he was sitting there, you got to understand, he was before a chief eunuch who represented the king who at any moment could just put them to death if they questioned anything. They had no voice. Daniel had no voice. He was a servant. A servant never spoke to their master. They just did what they were supposed to do and never had a conversation. Here was Daniel hearing from God, knowing God had a plan, and he was set up. And here's as we see this, we have to understand because when you react as a transformer, you don't react with the intention of trying to get your way. You act with the intention of God getting his way. Watch that now. You don't react to get your way. You act to get God's way. And acting to get God's way means you got to be in tune with God. We have to be in tune with God to hear his voice, to sense his presence, to know what he's saying next. Because we don't know. Some people might say, oh, there goes Bruno again. He wants this. No, I'm honestly asking the question, God, what do you want? Because it's not about what I want because I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't be a servant of the most high God because we're all servants of the most high God. We're servants. He's the master. He's Adonai. We're his servants. And so we, we want to see that Daniel's in that place, but he felt moved to speak. He, sp he felt moved. See, a transformer is an agent of change. They aren't concerned about being changed, but being used by God to do the changing. You see, that's a difference. Because sometimes we react because we want God to change us. So we kind of flip the script saying, God, you're the servant. I'm the master. Do what I want you to do. God's teaching us to be humble, to have courage, perseverance, and endurance. That's grit. That's surrendering. And that's hard because in our nature, we want what we want. We want our way. And God's trying to train us to go the opposite. And so he's teaching. And Daniel has a heart. He has a transformer heart. He has a heart that's saying, God, I want to make a difference for you. And so I thought we'd take a couple of moments here and just talk about what a transformer looks like in their heart. And what kind of heart do they have? Well, a transformer heart has conviction to honor God. Conviction to honor God. Daniel 1.8 is the key, it's the, I think it's the key verse of the entire book. I know that might sound a little strange, but I think it is. Why? Because it starts off with a very important statement. Watch this now. But Daniel. You might say, okay, Bruno, that's it. But Daniel. You ever notice in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, after it's described in verses 1 through 3, in Ephesians chapter 2, how sinful we are, we're disobedient, we're just depraved. But then in verse 4 it says, but God. 
So now Daniel's like, wait a minute, I might be in this setting, in this culture, and I have to conform and comply, and I'm about to be forced to, tell, to do whatever they tell me to do. But all of a sudden, it says, but Daniel. And what is it? It follows, resolved, stops. So, but Daniel resolved. Because you might say, okay, wait, okay, resolved. What does that mean? Well, actually, the word in Hebrew is heart. I strangely think, Hebrew, heart to resolve. Oh, that doesn't make sense. Well, here's the thing. It's 13 meanings there. And of the 13 meanings, one of the meanings means a deliberate act of the will. A deliberate act of the will. And what it, what it goes on, it says, it says, motivated by a deep-seated personal conviction. So here they were. Daniel has a personal deep-seated conviction to do what? It goes on to say this. It says he would not defile himself with the king's food. So it was about the diet or with the wine that he drank. Because in the scriptures in the Old Testament, he was not to eat anything unclean or eat of anything that did not drain out the blood. And he knew that these were foreign people, that idol worship would be behind some of this food. And so he was concerned that he would not defile himself. He made up his mind. That's what it also means. He made up his mind to not defile himself. See, the law of Moses prohibited him to do so in eating. Just himself as an Israelite to eat food that's unclean, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. But also, the food was customarily associated with idol worship. So here he was, he says, I'm not falling into the trap. Now, this is a crazy man. I'll be honest with you, because he's like, pretty much kill me if you want. I'm not doing it. Kill me. I will die for, for the king, the true king. Not you, Nebuchadnezzar, but the king, almighty God, I will die for him. This was his resolve. This was his personal conviction. He had a conviction to honor God in any situation. He had a death certificate written all over him. You've got to be kidding me. And here he was. He says, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to divide himself, defile himself. And God gave, here we go again, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. He was willing to believe God that he had a plan, that it was truly his plan, that God was setting in his heart saying, I will not commit myself to this. He was willing to say, I will not sin against my God, I'd rather die. See, we need to have that kind of resolve today. We need to have that commitment and conviction in our hearts. Where are we as a people of God today? Do we really understand that when we become servants of the Most High God through Jesus Christ, when we give him our lives, when we say, God, here's my life, I confess my sin, you've forgiven me of my sin, I am now yours, I'm bought with a price. Do we understand as Christians that we have to be willing to die for the kingdom and for the king? That's what the scriptures talks about. Are we willing to die for faith? There are third world countries that are dying left. Third world country people are dying left and right for their faith. And we in America, I, as Christians, I don't know if we really fully understand that. God has called us to that grit, that conviction, that willingness to say, I am resolved in my heart to the point where I will not sin against God, nor will, even to the point of death. 
You know, Psalm 119, 9 through 11, it says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. That's what Daniel was doing. He knew the Old Testament was clear. He knew the law was clear. And he obeyed God. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. That's what keeps our resolve strong. That's what keeps our personal conviction on fire. I mean, he was thrown in the fire in this situation. God was saying, I'm going to throw Daniel and the three Hebrew boys into the fire. And they were willing to follow through with a resolved heart. And he goes on, he says, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the beauty of conviction. And God gave him opportunity and influence by building a relationship with his chief eunuch. you got to understand, this chief eunuch had no commitment to a servant. <laughs> he had no commitment to Daniel. He had no commitment. He was the oppressor. They were the oppressed. He didn't have to give in or talk to them. He could have just said one more word and I'll have you killed. But here was the favor and the compassion and the mercy that God would even give him, Daniel, an opportunity to talk to this man. It's mind-blowing to me. That means God's hand was in it, sovereignly leading this, raising Daniel up in a very difficult and impossible situation. How about you and I? Do we ever look at our lives and say, impossible, I can't do that. There's no way I can get through that. There's no way that can happen. Why? Because we logically can't make that up in our minds. Because we can't see it. Is that why? Or is God trying to teach us to trust him so that he can show us and then we can see? We believe and then we see, not see and then believe. God is teaching us to believe him and then he'll show us what he wants us to do. Don't look ever at a situation and say it's impossible. All things are. And we even say, well, you know, it is possible, but it looks like it's going that way. It could be. Maybe that's God's will. But God has given him favor for a purpose. New, King, New King James Version says in verse 8, he purposed in his heart. He resolved in his heart. He was set in his heart. That was conviction. Number two, what we need to see, too, is that we need to have courage. Courage to face the greatest test. Courage to face the greatest test. Verses 10 through 12, he goes on to say this. And the chief of eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king? Meaning I have a relationship with the king. I'm his servant. You're going to tell me now your so-called diet is going to work? It's actually going to make you look better when we've proven that our people are looking much better and the king's going to be happy because it's his diet and he wants it. He's sovereign. He's the king. You got to do what he says. You're not only going to say that I got to follow you. You're it's not only your head you're putting on there. You're putting my life on the line. No way, Daniel. I'm not even giving. The fact that he's talking to him about this is God moving. The fact that there's an open door that he's discussing this with him. The fact that there's a conversation is God moving. That's the beauty of where God is at work. And in verse 11, he goes on to say this. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which, by the way, keeps his names there. You notice that? Because in verse 7, he changed the names, but the writer's keeping the Israelite names. Because he's like, we're still people of God here in the midst of this culture. You and I are still the people of God 
in the midst of this culture. We have to have courage as our culture is moving in a different direction. Here was God keeping them. And now he goes on to say, test your servants. For 10 days, let us give vegetables to eat and water to drink. What courage. Phenomenal and fascinating to me that he would say, test me. Do you know that's an imperative, a polite imperative? Do you know it's in the imperfect, which means he keeps telling them, give me a chance. You know what it means, actually, in the Hebrew? He's like, put me to the test. Trust me, I know we're going to pass. Put me to the test, Ashpenaz. I'm going to be able to do this. I know God's going to do it. That's such confidence, such perseverance, such courage to say, go ahead, put me out there. I know God's going to come through. Are we talking like that? He was resolved in his heart. The reason why he had this courage was he's resolved in his heart. I hear a lot of people saying, man, I would love to have that kind of courage. I'd love to have that courage in my faith. I'd love to share Christ at my job. I would love to share Christ with my neighbor. I'd love to share Christ with my family member. I want that courage, but I don't know. I don't know if I can have that courage. And we just start to shrink. Is it possible? I'm not here to judge you, so i got to judge myself. Is it possible? The reason why we don't have courage is because we don't have resolve conviction? I think it's possible. I think sometimes we don't have that conviction to share. And God is saying, trust me, it starts with that resolve. It starts with that movement. It starts with that deep-seated conviction that says, God, I know you can do this through me. Because it's God who's doing it, it's not us. In fact, I go on to say this, if you want courage, you, got, you must have conviction. If you want to have, we want to have courage, we must have conviction. So I think about it because Daniel was polite. He started a relationship, and he was faced with it, a big trial here. How about you and I? You know, it was, they were supposed to take three years, right, 36 months, and they were going to conform them into a Babylonian cultural people. You know, the Israelites were going to become like figuring out the Chaldean you know, culture. 36 months, that's what it was going to take, right? We've been through 13 months of COVID. And look what it's done to us. Look, at, look how churches are, are slowly, slowly pulling away with attendance. I'm a part of a pretty good-sized pastoral network in Pennsylvania with a big church. And I met with seven other pastors because we're 21 of us and we're three groups. And I'm the lowest, I'm the smallest church. There's another one a little bit bigger than ours. And the rest of them are 2,000, 4,000, seven campuses. The biggest one is 16 campuses. And I'm part of this team. And every one of them had a similar story. They're losing attendance. In fact, at a greater rate than we are. And we're all sitting there as pastors asking the question. Because we see it. We see it in our culture. The conformity of Christians now, they're falling into a trap. 13 months. And it's changed us already. And we're supposed to be a people of conviction? We're supposed to be a people saying, God, use me. God, here I am. I want the courage. But where's our conviction? Where's our grit? 
Where's our courage? Where's our perseverance? Where's our endurance? We're falling away. And you guys might be like, oh, it's those younger people. Yeah, they're not getting it. No, it's us who are older. We're not discipling anyone. Are we going to disciple someone and lead them and come alongside them and build them up? That's what we're called to. We got to disciple. We got to encourage them. We got to bring them along because we're failing. We are all, I'm failing as a pastor. We're all failing. But that's okay because you know what? I give it to God and say, God, help. Help us, Lord. How do we get through this? And that's what we need, that grit. We need that courage. We need that perseverance. We need that endurance. We have to keep fighting through this time because it's only 13 months, a third of the time, just a third of the time that they were in 36 months. We have to be the ones that say, God, use us. We have to be the ones that say, God, help us. I think sometimes we don't. I think sometimes we don't go through the trial or we struggle through the trial because we don't think God's in it. We think God is far away from us, but he's right there. He loves us. He cares for us. He's giving us opportunities. I think sometimes we just, just not close enough to get it. But God is telling us we've got to move. I love what Warren Wormsby said here. The important question isn't, how can I get out of this trial? But what can I get out of this? The Lord used this private test to prepare Daniel and his friends for the public test they would face in years to come. The best thing about this experience wasn't that they were delivered from compromise, as wonderful as that that was, but that they were developed in character. That's the beauty of this. That's what God's called us to. Number three, a transforming, a transformer has a heart of credibility. Credibility, credibility that breeds trust from others. A credibility that breeds trust from others. Look what verse 13, here's a key verse here again. It says, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. Again, the conversation continues. And deal with your servants according to what you see. See, Daniel was smart. He was polite. He tried to collaborate. find some kind of common ground, but he gave Ashpenaz the upper hand saying, you're you're in charge. You're the boss. You do what you need to do. I'm going to prove to you. Test us. We got this. You're the boss. You determine. After this testing of 10 days, you determine saying who's better off. And here's verse 14. So he listened. But Daniel resolved, so he listened. Ashpenash listened to him. He followed Daniel. I mean, this is just mind-blowing to me. He listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Didn't have to. Could have had them killed. God says, no, I'm in this. I've got my hand on this. And at the end, at the end, it says this, of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. I know I would have been fatter in flesh. I don't even have to live there, and I'm already there. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Wow. <laughs> That's the diet I've been trying to file for the past seven weeks. I got into my pants. To my <laughs> I got into my suit pants for the wedding a couple of weeks ago. That was my goal, and I got there. But I ate a lot of vegetables. 
And I'll tell you, I can use this diet. But everyone can use this diet. But that's the beauty. Here's what I love what Proverbs said, what Solomon said when he said this. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's Daniel. What grit, courage, perseverance, endurance. Even his own enemy, his oppressor, was at peace with him. I just love this. When was the last time a person far away from God listened to you when you shared the message of the gospel? When was the last time? When was the last time the Lord gave you favor and compassion through your heart of conviction? See, I believe God wants people to listen to us. But I believe people would listen more if we had a heart of conviction and courage. I think they would. I believe this will give us great credibility in the lives of unbelievers. We struggle just to get believers to listen to us. It's a challenge in and of itself. Transformers are always looking for open doors. Open doors and opportunities to change the world. That's what they're looking for. Open doors and opportunities to change their world, to honor God, and to give him glory. That's what it takes on. I mean, look, look at the last part of this, this chapter. I mean, I just, and here he goes again. And as, the four, as these four youths, God gave them. Here we go. God gave them. God gave verse 2, verse 9, now verse 17. What did he give them? Learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. Why? For their glory? No, for God's glory. Why? So now as they're in this culture, they can be a catalyst, a change agent, an agent of change. They could be transformers. God can use them to reach these people. And we'll see in the book of Daniel, that's what Daniel was able to do because God was in the midst. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And Daniel gives God the glory in chapter 2 for that. And it says, at the end of time, when the king was commanded and they were to be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found like. None, like Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. Still the same names, the Israelite names. Therefore they stood before the king in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them. And he found them ten times better. Wow. Here, Ashpenaz said, well, wait a minute, I'm taking, I'm putting my life on the line. Wait a minute, I, I don't think you're going to turn out better. Uh, it's not just your head, it's mine. Now he's like, the king is so pleased. He was impressed. Ten times better after the 36 months. After the 10 days, but then they went through 36 months there. And it's ten times better. How about us? If we have a personal conviction, deep-seated conviction to be used of God and to have the courage that he can give us and he would open the doors and windows of opportunities, will God not make us lean an opportunity ten times better? I finish with this. So how do we become transformers in our present context? Conviction, courage, credibility, grit. I think we're lacking it today. I think David Platt said it well in his book, Radical. I want to read something to you. 
I think he, he has some sense here. He says, in 1952, the United States constructed the SS United States. The ship was able to travel 44 knots, 51 miles per hour, and be able to run for 10,000s, tens of thousands of miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. An amazing note about the ship, this ship could turn, outturn, excuse me, outrun any other ship and travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. The fastest troop carrier of its time. However, it never carried troops. The closest it got to war was on standby for 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. This ship turned into a luxury liner for presidents, heads of states, and a variety of celebrities. It traveled for 17 years. Instead of holding 15,000 troops, it held close to 2,000 people. The passengers could enjoy 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of an open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the first fully air conditioner passenger ship. David Platt mentions this in the following. He says, as the U.S. United States was designed for battle, so also was the church designed to mobilize people to accomplish a mission. We have seemed to turn the church, a troop carrier, to a luxury liner. We seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in battle for the souls of people around the world, but to indulge ourselves in the peace comforts of this world. This makes me, he says, this makes me wonder what would happen if we looked squarely in the face of the world with five to six billion people who are going to hell, 26 plus thousand children every day of starvation and preventable diseases, and we decided it was time to move the ship into battle instead of sitting back on the pool deck while we wait for the staff to serve us more drinks and hors d'oeuvres. Wow. That blew me away because I was convicted when I read that. I got to be honest with you. I'll just say one person right here before you. I'm on a luxury liner right now. I need to get on a troop carrier ship. I think we need some grit. I think we need some Daniel grit, resolved heart, conviction, courage with credibility that will open up doors for us, for the kingdom. I don't want to see the same people coming here to church every Sunday. I'm sorry. <laughs> no disrespect. Love you guys. But I want to see different people coming here. It's going to count on you guys. You guys got to start inviting. I can't. Dennis can't. We can't. Pastoral team, we can't invite everybody in the world. We can't sit there with signs on the side. Come to church. Grace Church Waldorf. Sit there on the sign and wear a bunny suit or something like that and get your attention. We can't do that. We all got to work together. We have to invite people ourselves. Talk to people. Have a card. In a couple of weeks or so, we're going to have some GC marks or, you know, just some GC cards that give a little bit of evangelism uh, presentation, small four points. And we're going to give you guys some invite cards to start sharing the gospel with people. It's time for us to do that. We're going into evangelism. We've got to start sharing the gospel through our lives, through relationship. I'm keeping you here a couple of minutes to remind us how important this is for us to start getting some grit. I know it's tough. I know it's tiring. I know energy is really low, but we got to believe God for something new. I want to challenge you as your pastor, let's get some grit. Let's get some God-honoring resolve, intentionality, and tenacity in us. Let's start taking our vitamins a little bit more and get some energy. 
and ask God to do a work. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us a couple of more minutes this, this week. We so desperately need you. We need you to lead us and direct us. We need you, God, in our midst. Lord, we pray for you to give us some grit this week, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to stand firm, to have some resolve, to have courage, to stand firm in you. God, I pray that today you will give us that perseverance, that endurance, that patience and passion to follow you. Lord, we love you. We surrender our lives to you. Dismiss us, Lord, with a passion to go forward this week. Lord, open the doors of opportunities. Give us those windows, Lord. We really want them for your glory and your honor and your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you.